Thank you to all who participated in our Torah service, to our Torah and Haftor readers, and blessers to Carl, our Gabbai. Thank you so much. We come now to um, a very special moment in our service every year, and that is the Rhoda Friedrichs Memorial Lecture, given uh, as it has been every year by Chris Friedrichs, our teacher and our friend. Chris, we thank you as always for being with us and teaching us your Torah this afternoon. Thank you for all that you do in our community, and thank you for reminding us, as you will, I know, in this, in this moment as well, the important lessons of history that are also lenses for the present. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, bye-bye. Take your time, but don't take too long. <laughs> so I am a, um, I'm a historian. And normally, historians begin by thinking about the past, and then they suggest what messages or lessons the past may have for thinking about the present and the future. But sometimes it's useful to first think about the present and then take those thoughts back into the past. And that is what I want to do today. Rabbi Moskowitz summoned us last night to think about loneliness. It's a huge topic, one that requires us to think seriously about our own lives and the way we engage both with people who are important in our lives and with people who are not, but maybe should be. But loneliness is also a topic that requires us to think about the past, and in doing so, to, comp to contemplate the most agonizing experience in the entire history of our people, the Shoah. But what, in fact, is loneliness? Loneliness has nothing to do with being alone. Many people live contentedly alone without feeling lonely. Others live surrounded by other people, yet feel the anguish of loneliness. Loneliness has nothing to do with how many people you share a home or a room or an event with. It has to do with whether you feel a connection to other people and whether they feel they have a connection with you. Every now and then, people must undergo some medical or dental procedure that requires sedation. And they're normally given the customary instruction that they may not drive home or take a bus home or even walk home. Instead, someone must bring them home. And it cannot be a taxi driver or a stranger. It must be a friend or a family member. And sometimes, the instructions specifically say, you must be escorted home by somebody who has a stake in your well-being. What a wonderful phrase that is. 
And what a wonderful concept to know that somebody has a stake in your well-being. It is what we all crave. And what, by contrast, is loneliness, loneliness can be the fear that nobody really has a stake in your well-being. Or it can be the equally sorrowful awareness that those who might have a stake in your well-being have been taken or sent or torn away from you, perhaps never to be seen again. Here in our rich and abundant society in Canada, we are surrounded by loneliness. Think of the people who not just live alone, but who lack the capacity to even leave their homes and wait endlessly for visits that never come, treasuring the few snippets of conversation with the person who delivers the mail or brings the meals on wheels because that is the only real interaction they will have all day. Think of all the Asian women in our community who have left their own children with relatives back home while they earn money for their families by looking after children or others here in British Columbia often lovingly and caringly, but still pining for the moment when they will be reunited with their own children. Think of those members of our community and our society who are locked in the total isolation of advanced dementia, a loneliness which they no longer have words to describe so that when we visit them, we may hope they will know who we are or why we have come, but we can never know for sure. And then there are the walking lonely, people able to get out and go places, but always on the sidelines, never sure they are really wanted or really welcomed or whether anyone around them really has a stake in their well-being. And that is just the here and now. Consider also how loneliness pervades what we know about the Shoah. In fact, loneliness was among the worst of the countless miseries inflicted on our people before they were murdered. Admittedly, the single most widely read account of the Shoah conveys the very opposite to loneliness. Anne Frank was never lonely in that tiny annex. Indeed, she desperately yearned for a little time or a little space just for herself. But then, once she and the other seven occupants of the annex were betrayed and arrested and sent to the camps, they too began to share the lonely fate of six million other Jews. Even before the war began, as Jews in Germany and Austria and Czechoslovakia began to try to leave those countries, 
they often faced the loneliness of family separations. Think of those parents who were unable to emigrate themselves but let their children be taken on kinder transports to Britain. It was bad enough for the children, but they generally assumed they would see their parents again. It was worse, far worse, for the parents who so often feared or knew that this would never come to pass. What was it like to stand on the station platform, desperately waving farewell until the train passed out of view, knowing that they had saved their children's lives, but would never see those children again. Think of the loneliness of the children who survived in hiding. Even in loving families who risked their very lives by hiding Jews, the children soon learn that they must answer to new names, hide in cellars and closets whenever strangers visited, never ask questions about why they were there or what would happen. Think of their loneliness. And think of the loneliness of the Jews who were put onto trains, packed so tightly into boxcars that they could not even sit down, provided with no food or water for a journey that often lasted for day after day. What solidarity, what capacity to care for another person could be left between friends or spouses or parents or children when all were reduced to a desperate struggle just for a breath of air or a droplet of rainwater. Who could have a stake in anybody else's well-being then? Think of the loneliness of the Jews who were spared death on arrival in the camps only because they were needed for slave labor, kept alive on starvation diets to work only until a new batch of arrivals could replace them on the work detail. Yes, there are inspiring stories from some camps of Jews who managed to preserve some pieces of Jewish ritual, who managed to support and console each other or sacrificed their bread or their life to help someone else. We deeply honor their memory. But we must also think of those Jews, and there were many, who stole another prisoner's boots or coat or bread. Considering the circumstances, we never, ever condemn them for what they did. We simply note with bottomless sorrow that so many of our people were condemned by unremitting humiliation and beatings and starvation to experience the death of their souls 
before they were went before they were sent to suffer the death of their bodies. We can hardly begin to fathom the loneliness they must have felt in these situations, alienated from those they worked or slept next to in a place where no one could trust anyone else. I found myself reflecting in a very personal way recently on the depths of loneliness created by the Shoah. This summer, on a trip to Germany, I had the opportunity to visit a building that had once been a Jewish nursing home in the small town of Bendorf in the Rhineland. I had heard and read about this place many times because it was where Karl Rosenberg, my wife's grandfather, had spent the last two years of his life before he and all the other patients as well as the staff of that nursing home were deported by train to be taken first to Cologne and then eastward to Sobibor to be killed there if they were not already murdered on the way or not already dead on arrival of starvation or dehydration or asphyxiation. Today, this former Jewish nursing home continues to serve a humanitarian purpose as a Catholic home for severely disabled men and women. But its earlier identity as a Jewish place is not forgotten. A dedicated local historian, a retired school teacher, has researched the history of this institution and of the Jews who were deported from it. And he now took me around the grounds and into the building. A pillar in the garden serves as a memorial to the Jews who once lived there. A huge signboard in the lobby lists the name of each and every one of the deported Jews. The chapel is, of course, now used for Catholic worship. But a big sign and some photos document that in former times, this chapel was the little synagogue of the Yakobshi nursing home. Karl Rosenberg was probably well treated in this home. After all, not only all the other patients, but all the doctors and nurses and caregivers were Jews. Did he know and understand this? His dementia was presumably getting progressively worse. But then, in the summer of 1942, he and all the others were put on those trains that would take them to Poland. He could not have fully grasped what was happening to him but he will have dimly understood that something had changed, something he could not ask about because he did not have the words to ask. What waves of confusion and, yes, loneliness 
must have assaulted this 78-year-old Jewish man surrounded by others who were sunk in their own fear and desperation. Did he recognize the faces of caregivers who had gently tended him for the last two years? And if he did, could he understand that they now were gripped by their own anxious terror about what lay ahead? We will never know. But we do know that whatever was taking place in his clouded mind before he was murdered were things too terrible for us to contemplate. And what about his wife, Tekla, my wife's grandmother, who had to remain in Berlin living with other women in a Juden house while performing forced labor until she was deported on November 29, 1942, from the Grunewald train station directly to Auschwitz. We know from the letters and messages that she was able to send to her daughters in America that her mind was completely clear in the months before her deportation. She knew only too well what lay ahead. Did that make what happened to her any easier to cope with? Or precisely because she understood all was the loneliness she experienced on that long, desperate journey to where she would be murdered even more acute. This too, we will never know. But we do know that these two people were just two of the six million human beings whose lives ended in misery and fear and deep, unremitting loneliness. There is nothing we can ever do for those six million. But there are ways we can try to honor their memory. We can recall their suffering, speak their names, tell the stories of their lives, and remember them when we say the Kaddish. We can use their experiences to try to teach the world about the dangers of racism, to show how quickly small measures of racial discrimination can turn within just a few years into programs of mass murder. But there is another way we can honor the memory of those whose death was preceded in so many cases by the anguish of a loneliness we cannot begin to grasp. We can seek out the lonely in our own midst, in our own Jewish community and beyond it. We can look for those people who have lost the feeling that there are others who have a stake in their well-being. We can visit not only those who can give expression to their loneliness, but even those whose disease or dementia has robbed them of the capacity to respond, but who may still recognize a familiar face or familiar voice or may appreciate even a stranger's smile or gentle touch. 
We may not know for sure if they know us, but it is still worth doing. Let us take our inspiration from a story told by Professor Deborah Lipstadt. Many of you will recognize her name, all the more so because Rabbi Brown mentioned her in her drosh this very morning. Deborah Lipstadt is one of the world's leading historians of the Holocaust and a fearless fighter against anti-Semitism in general and Holocaust denial in particular. In her book, History on Trial, she mentions a Polish friend, Father Stanisław Muział, a Jesuit priest whom she had met on one of her many trips to Poland. He was deeply interested in outreach to Jews, and accordingly, he was appointed to serve as the secretary of the Episcopal Commission for Dialogue with Judaism. But he took his job too seriously. He openly condemned his superiors for failing to acknowledge the role of the churches in the Holocaust or for tolerating efforts to establish a Catholic shrine at Auschwitz. Finally, he was silenced by the bishops, dismissed from his position, blocked from voicing his views, and reassigned to be the chaplain of a Catholic nursing home for women with advanced cases of dementia. When Professor Lipstadt met Father Muzia on her next trip to Poland, she commiserated with him about the frustration he must have felt in being dismissed from his life's work in creating bridges between Catholics and Jews and banished to provide spiritual services to women with dementia. But he did not accept what she said. No, he explained, I am quiet with my conscience, for this too is God's work. We as Jews have much to do, and much of it can well be described as God's work. We must recall and retell our history and make sure the six million of our people who were so relentlessly murdered in the Shoah will never be forgotten. We must, as we were powerfully reminded just a week ago from this very Bima, we must play our share in fighting to save our planet for future generations of Jews and non-Jews alike. We must work to preserve Jewish life and Jewish homes and Jewish communities. We must build bridges to other communities. But we must also seek out those who are lonely in our own community and find ways to make them know that we have a stake in their well-being. And we must even reach out to those whose minds and voices can no longer even give expression to their loneliness. 
people who for just that reason may be the loneliest of all. For in the words of that gentle Jesuit priest who so inspired a great Jewish historian, that too is a way of doing God's work. Shana Tova. We are so blessed as a congregation, from Chris and from all amongst us that teach, teach us Torah. Thank you so much, Chris. Our service continues, page 360, with the Amidah. Please rise. <laughs> 